There's something in my office I wanted to share with you as well. Something that I keep on the shelf in my office, I keep it there so that I can look at it now and again. It, it does remind me, well, it's a, it's a blast from the past, so to speak, but it's this, it's this little beetle. I had this little beetle in my office, and it's a particular kind of beetle, you see. We had these in southern Africa, both in Swaziland and, and, and also in South Africa, and it's called a dung beetle. The dung beetle spends much of its effort gathering, collecting, forming into a nice little ball. It might be buffalo dung, it might be rhino dung, it might be elephant dung, quite exotic dung to be sure. Forms it into a little ball and it becomes its precious. It's very important. It guards it. It will fight over it. In fact, I had a, a video, you might not believe me, but put, to put this in, in, in perspective, I had a, just a short video clip I wanted to show you. He's got his ball, and of course somebody else is trying to take it. You got your ball, and somebody else is going to try to take it from you. Guaranteed. <laughs> Notice the persistence. If only we had that kind of persistence for, for what is worth far more. Kind of looks like WWE, doesn't it? There's an analogy there. Still trying. What a trooper. Well, come around the backside. No, that didn't work. You know, the, the dung is actually valuable. They, can, they, can, they uh, will, will actually lay their eggs in, into that ball. It keeps the, keeps the eggs warm. gives the larvae something to, oh, maybe he's given up. Nope. I'm going to take a run at it. Sometimes you just can't let go, right? Oh, oh, watch. Oh, reversal. Okay, he's the king of the pile now. I'm getting out of here, right? You're going you're gonna to take your dung and run, right? Off he goes. All right. So, now why do I show you that? Because there's something about that that reminds us of something about us, doesn't it? What is it that we fight for? What is it that we fight over? What is it that we spend so much energy trying to gather? Well, it might be good fertilizer, but is it really worth what we think it is in comparison to something that is worth far more? That's an analogy that, that Jesus presses into a little bit in this passage that's before us in Luke chapter 14. What will it cost me? Well, knowing Christ... And certainly, if you are willing to choose to follow Christ, it's going to cost you something. But does it really cost us much? How we esteem how much it costs us might be determining, and am I willing to follow or not? What do I think I'm giving up? And it may be that I think I'm giving up. What I, what I would choose between is not worth as much as it seems to be in the moment. I want to look this morning in chapter 14 at, at what will it cost me, both in terms of things that seem to get in the way, a cost that we might not want to pay, both for, for believing in Christ, receiving God's salvation, that which is free to us, and yet it does 
cost us something. But then, even more, Jesus moves from there, that illustration with the Pharisees that we'll talk about briefly. He then moves into, if we're going to believe in him, if we are going to have life with Christ, if we are then going to walk with him and follow him, be his disciples, it's going to cost us something. We're going to have to make choices. And so I want to press into that and the value of those choices as we look in Luke chapter 14. So I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 14 if you're using the church Bible in front of us because I want you to be able to follow along. And uh, that'll be on page 873. Luke chapter 14. What will, first of all, what will believing in Jesus cost me? And it'll cost me in three ways. It'll cost me in my estimation of myself and my need, my ability to be good for God. It will humble me. To receive God's gift for me is going to humble me. I cannot work for this. I cannot do enough. I'm going to have to believe God. I'm going to have to take his word for it. Not what makes sense to me. Not what I can see and feel and experience, but I'm going to have to trust God and take his word for it rather than my own understanding. So look at Luke chapter 14. First of all, if I'm going to believe in Jesus, what will it cost me? In verse 1, one Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So Jesus is going to dinner with the Pharisee at their invitation, the ruler of the Pharisees, with all of his friends invited as well. And we've already learned in Luke that they have made their mind already. Now they're just watching him carefully, seeing if there's some way that they can trap him. Okay, so he goes to dine at the house of, of the ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him very carefully, and behold... There was a man before him who had dropsy. He has this swelling in his extremities and a really uncomfortable and disabling retention of fluids. He's a pitiful sight to behold. And somehow he makes it into the room, but getting around is not very easy. His condition is obvious. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, to the legalists who were gathered, and he asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, actually, we've already run into that question in Luke, where after Jesus heals somebody in the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, the official in charge of the synagogue, says, hey, you people, cut this out. You've got six days in the week that you can come for healings. Don't come on the Sabbath, because that's work, healing on the Sabbath. We don't allow that here. And so Jesus puts it to them over the dinner table after synagogue, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He has all the scholars gathered now. They ought to be able to give him an answer on this. We ought to be able to sort this out. Was that man right, what he said there in the synagogue or not? But they remained silent. They didn't want to answer. Then he took the man and he healed him and he sent him away. And Jesus said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply because they knew that's exactly what they would do. Even if pulling up an animal out of a well or even stuck in the mud in a, in a pond or, or a stream, to pull a child out of a well, that's going to be a lot more physical work than it would be just for him to touch this man and heal him. And yet, they would do that, 
of their own personal interest and their love, perhaps, for their child or their fear of losing the investment of their livestock, they, w- they would certainly do that, but they care more for that in their own advantage than they do for this man who's suffering and needs God's healing. Because there's this righteous expectation of what we do and what we don't do and what we approve and what we don't approve and the rules that we keep that make us acceptable before God. That is their inclination here. And they don't want to give that up. If I follow the rules, if I do what I'm supposed to do and if I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, then I will be right and acceptable before God. And that kind of thinking creeps into our own minds at times. And yet... God's forgiveness, standing with God, restoration into right relationship with God, the removal of our guilt, of the the right relationship, life with God, his eternal life with him in his kingdom, that is received on the basis of God's mercy toward us. God's grace, his undeserved favor. God does for us what we do not deserve, what we have not earned, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to his cross I cling. It's on that basis and on that basis only. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, Titus 3 says. For by grace are you saved through faith. And we'll see faith, belief in God's promise. I will will trust God at his word to me rather than on the basis of what I have done. For by God's grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So that's one of the hindrances for these Pharisees. Another one comes in right, right, right behind it. Still at the table, he draws another analogy out of this dinner banquet. Now behold, a parable. He told a parable to those who were invited. He noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited the both of you will come and say to you, please, could you give your place to this other table? And then you're going to have to leave that place. You're going to have to go all the way down to the end of the table, the last seat that was left because nobody else esteemed themselves so lowly. And you're embarrassed. You have that walk of shame in front of everybody, taking the, being moved from the good seat to the least seat. He says, he says, don't do it that way. He gives them a little uh, uh, pride-saving strategy here. He says, do this. Instead, take the lowest seat, and then your host will come and say, no, 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 please, don't sit here. Let me move you to a better seat. It's kind of like on an airplane. You, you choose to sit in coach, and they, they have a seat left over up in first class, and they come down, and they get you. And they said, can we move you up to first class? And you say, well, gee, I don't know. You say, okay. And you get to walk all the way up the aisle. Look how important I am. I'm going to first class. You get the warm cookies. It's wonderful, right? I don't know. <laughs> but so, 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 so he's, he's giving this, but, but in that, he's, he's reminding them that not only are we received by, in, received by God on the basis of his mercy, on the basis of his grace, we are received in humility. We come with humility. That, that I don't deserve God's honor of me. I have no claim upon him. 
But God, in fact, I confess that I'm unworthy. I confess my guilt and my sin. And in the confessing of my guilt and my sin and my unworthiness, there is the reception of God's salvation. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So we come by his mercy and grace. We come in humility. These are obstacles to faith. Do you wonder why it is that the pe- people around you, that, that you so want to receive forgiveness in Christ as well? And what keeps them? What's in the way? It might be that it's of mercy and not merit. That they can't earn it. They can't deserve it. They have to receive God's mercy. That, that it's a matter of humility. That we bow the knee before the king. That he is the worthy one, not me. That I come on. His terms, confessing my need, humbly receiving his gracious salvation. And that we do by faith. He tells them another parable in verse 12. He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite all your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Well, why would he invite those folks? Because, well, they party together. I invite you, you invite me. Oh, and let's invite the rich neighbors because you know what? They will put on an even bigger spread next time around. And because we invited them, they'll have to invite us and we will eat good that day. So there's a, there's a mutual benefit party going on here. He says, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, he's not, his main purpose is not to instruct the Pharisees on how to be followers of Jesus and do what's right. They're not followers of Jesus. They don't even believe in him. But part of what he's confronted them on is Pharisees in their theology, they were right about one thing in particular, and that was the resurrection. They believed that there was a resurrection, that God would reward the faithful in his resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did, and yet he he brings that out. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that such that you live differently today because you believe in God's future? Or are you actually choosing your exaltation today? You see, we come to God in his salvation What these Pharisees were missing, they were missing because it was by mercy, not their good works. They were going to keep the law, do what it said, and be right before God and deserving of his honoring. They, they, were, they were going to, uh, they, they were in fact proud of how well they kept God's rules and how pleased God must be with them in front of the other people around them. They, they did not actually trust God for his future. For instance, Jesus presses that a little bit further. They need to come, by, to come to God by faith, and yet they don't really believe what they say they believe. Look at verse 15. One of those who reclined at the table with him when he heard these things, one of the other invited guests, one of the Pharisees says, Oh yeah, amen. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What he's saying there by that statement, and it's a Hebrew idiom, to eat bread in the kingdom, to be invited, to be at God's table. Blessed are those who are going to be at God's table in his kingdom. That's going to be wonderful. Yes, we might think of it in terms of blessed are those who are going to be with the Lord in heaven. Very general statement, very general 
statement of faith, and yet Jesus says, well, really? But he said to him, verse 16, there's a contrast, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant. Now, he sent a great banquet, and he invited many, and then he, tells, he sends a servant to go to those who have been invited, who have all agreed that they're coming. Thank you for inviting me to the banquet. That's going to be wonderful. And yet, when the servant comes to say, everything is ready, now please come, well, things have changed. Verse 18, they all alike, every one of them began to make excuses. Excuses like this. The first one says, well, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Really, he bought a field without seeing it? Probably not. But I bought a field, and I just want to go look at it. I, I, I just want to go admire my field. This land is now mine. I want to sit there on a, under a shady tree in the corner of the property and just look out and imagine this field and what I'm going to do with it and what I'm going to grow here and how I'm going to be able to hand this down to my children and my children's children. And this is our inheritance. This, this field is our future. Not God's kingdom. There's a different confidence. There's a different faith. And another said, well, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go examine them. I need to go test them. I need to go prove them. They looked good at the market. They looked strong. They look healthy. But now I've got to hitch them up to the plow, or now I've got to hitch them up to the trade wagon that I'm going to carry my goods in, and I need to make sure that they can actually pull in the harness that they can do that which I've invested in them to do. The future of my business is online here. I can't come to a party now. I I have got work to do to provide for the future. Remember, these things are in contrast to the invitation to the banquet, which is an image of the banquet of God's kingdom. I've got something else that I need to do right now. And the third said, well, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. You know, in the law it says that when a man marries a wife, well, he's freed from all public responsibilities like serving in the army. The only Excuse me, microphone. The only reason that that would excuse him now is if this banquet is not seen as a wonderful opportunity of blessing and favor to him, but it's perceived as a public responsibility. A rubber chicken dinner that I have to go to just to show my allegiance to the ruler of our area. If that's what it is, and nobody really wants to go, and they're all making excuses, but if that's the way we see God's future, or if they do, is, yeah, God is God, and we are not, so we're going to have to do what he says, we're going to have to play by his rules, we're going to have to keep the law as best we can, and we're going to have to show up at the times when God said so, but it's really an, an, an inconvenience, and we have other things we'd rather do, so if I've got a legitimate excuse for bowing out, I will take it. That's what's going on here. The excuses seem, what's, what's interesting about these excuses is they all would sound rather plausible to the Pharisees. But they're paralleling not only missing a wonderful banquet party opportunity, in the midst of the daily struggles and toils of life, somebody else is putting on a, a grand event. And what a wonderful thing to be able to take the misses too. 
instead of to use that as the reason not to go. If this is really going to be a grand, a grand and glorious event that is just where everything is poured out for them as an example of God's kingdom. God's future is, is like that. It is grander than we realize. I has not seen nor has here heard all that God has prepared for us. And yet... There's a lot of seemingly good excuses. I can earn God's approval. I, 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 I'm actually too proud to bend the knee and to bend my heart to believe by faith that what God says is true. I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anybody. Or, yeah, maybe, but I've really got pressing things to do that are really important right now. Now, there's things that we could learn about that in terms of how we applied those to the Christian life. But I see initially with Jesus talking to the Pharisees, he's confronting these who say they have faith in God, but they're not going to embrace Jesus. And he's poking at them as to why. They don't want God's mercy. They want to be justified by their works. They will not humble themselves so that God can exalt them. No, they are proud of themselves and their worthiness. They, they don't really believe God's promise for the future. They're going to make their way. And yet they're easily distracted by the things of life. They're going to be distracted by even the political status quo that makes Jesus more of a threat to them because he might disrupt the system with the Pharisees. All these are reasons why they, all reasons why people around us as well, will back away from believing in Christ as Savior. It'll cost them something, not, not necessarily out of their pocket, but it'll cost them something in terms of their own pride. In terms of, it'll cost them something in humility. It'll cost them something in confession. It'll cost them something in, I've got to trust God and his word about the future instead of my own understanding. And those are all hard things to do. Harder than we who believe, we for who God has turned the light on. It's, it's, it's harder to do that than we might realize. But I really wanted to push from those reasons, those costs that are real for somebody in salvation, the cost of one's own pride, if we could say it that way, in receiving mercy. But there's, there's a parallel for we who have believed on Christ and would follow him. And that's the parallel I want to push into a little bit more in the, in the second half of the chapter. Headlined in the ESV as the cost of discipleship. Because now Jesus turns from the Pharisees who are fixed in their rejection of him. He turns now to the crowds who have been following him. Listening from his teaching. Wondering about his teaching. What should they do with his teaching? They're, they're genuinely interested. Many of them will in the future be believers. Many, some of these who are following him now will be in that upper room when there's about 120 some of them are going to be among the first 2,000 and then 3,000 more who receive Christ as their Savior. Now the great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that is what you call in Scripture a hard statement. We've got to find a way out of it. 
Because at the surface, it's a very strong and startling statement. If anyone does not, and I'm tempted to rush right to an explanation, but I don't think we should do that. I think first we should be confronted with the harshness and the hardness of it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is doing something that the prophets did, that, that preachers try to do. Now and again, you want to you grab a crowd's attention. You, you open with a startling statement. He has their attention. Because what he is saying seems to come, just like the excuses that were given to the banquet seem like reasonable enough excuses, especially with the, the, the poor guys just married. Give him time for his honeymoon year. And they seem like good reasons. But... There is something better. A ball of dung seems very important, but there is something far better. It's the point that's being made here. Now, we know that Jesus is not commanding us to hate our father and mother because he tells us to honor your father and mother. So there's a seeming contradiction there. We are told in the New Testament to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That, that Paul is not, uh, you could actually, I was reminded this week that a person can actually take this, take this passage and say, it's right for me to neglect my family in the service of God. And maybe that's a message that a whole lot of pastors need to hear. It's right, is it right for me to neglect my family in the service of God? There's a lot that's been done over the years in the missionary movement. But Jesus is not here calling us to neglect our family. He's using what is a, a typical Hebrew idiom, a, a way of expression. He's contrasting something against another. Even as God himself says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But God makes a kingdom out of Esau. It's called Edom. God allows them to grow and to prosper. God's hand of blessing has been th through history on Edom also, such that the Israelites in the book of Malachi would say, how is it that you have loved us more than Esau? God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Yet God doesn't hate Esau. God doesn't hate Edom. In fact, one simple proof would be that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God doesn't hate certain groups within the world, and he's decided, no, I hate those, and I'm just going to prefer these. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when, 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 Jesus, when, when, when God says, rather, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he's talking about, I chose. I gave a preference to. I gave a particular preference out of normal family order. Esau was the firstborn, and yet I chose Jacob. I lifted Jacob for a particular purpose of the family line through whom the Messiah would come. The, the, the branch of the family through whom Abraham's promise would continue, and I chose it to be Jacob rather than Esau. I preferred one over the other. And that's what Paul was saying. It wasn't a bad thing to be born a Hebrew. It wasn't a bad thing to be born of the tribe of Benjamin. It wasn't a bad thing to be educated in the law of Moses. All of those could be arguably very good things. 
And yet, in contrast to knowing Christ, Paul said, I would not let anything, I would not value being a member of the Pharisee club, I would not value that over knowing Christ and being known by him. I would give all of that up. I would gladly leave it behind. I would count those things as less in order that I might pursue that which is greater. That's what Paul's saying in, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8. He's, he's preferring the one over the other, even if at least some aspects of the other were good and fine things in and of themselves. I don't want to knock balls of dung. If balls of dung are your thing, I guess that's okay. Certainly, you could be in the fertilizer business. And yet, there is something in life far better. And Paul says, I count all of these things dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In fact, I will join him, I will follow him in his sufferings in order that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. His sufferings, that's what comes next. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We actually follow him. You can't follow Jesus if you don't go where Jesus went. And Jesus chose the path, intentionally chose the path of suffering for the sake of others. He knew there was a cost involved, and yet Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 in chapter 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross. Because of the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up in due time. And that's the point of Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus humbled himself. He did not consider his own equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and came in the likeness of man. And being found in the likeness of man, he comes into humanity, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore has God highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. There's the path that's set before us. And if we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to be his learners of him, if we're going to be following him, we're going to taste something of the rejection that he was rejected with. We're going to taste something of the loss of the things which he also was willing to give up. We're going to experience some of the discomfort by which he was also discomforted so that he might lift us. And we're going to do it not merely for our own benefit, but we're going to do it for the sake of others. Sometimes for those who will throw it back in our face. They won't bless you and esteem you and recognize you for it. They will criticize you for it. They might mock you for it. They might call you foolish. But we know that the foolishness of God is, is wiser than the wisdom of men. And we're going to have to choose. That's the whole point here. What seems like a sacrifice is simply choosing that which is better. To, be know, to know him even in his sufferings. Because that's where I experienced something of what it was that he did for me. To nibble around the edges of the rejection that he willingly took to the fullest extent in order to save me.
to taste a little bit of that, not for my own benefit, but for the sake of somebody else. There's where I know him. When it costs me. When it costs me even the opinions of others, the, the approval of others. Now, he says, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, he, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it are going to mock him. <laughs> it's a nice concrete pad you got there. What are you going to build on it? He compares it to what king or going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000. Can I follow through? If I go out, if I step forward, can I finish what I've started? Can I follow through? That's just good practical advice again. Can I finish? Can I follow through? If I'm going to step into the sacrificial way, if I'm going to step into following Christ, can I finish? Counting the cost, am I really able to follow through with what it's going to along the way cost me? And the truth is, you don't know. You don't know because you don't know what it's going to cost you. You don't know yet what sacrifice might be set before you in your walk with Christ. You know it will not be, even to the point of death, it will not be to the extent of which he bore that sacrifice for you. But can you follow through? He did. But can I? Can you? We really don't know, don't we? If it were up to us, and I think Jesus is leaving that question hanging there, because we don't know. And yet, he calls us to take another step forward. He says, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, at the end, he, 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 he pushes back into what he, the strong statement he made at the beginning. What does it mean to hate in comparison? It is to renounce everything else, to consider everything else, as Paul did, as loss, that I might gain Christ. What is it that gets in your way? As I was thinking about this, one of the things that came to mind for me was, was the model of a missionary. And that came to mind for me because they do make particular sacrifices, sacrifices in life which we easily understand. The moving away from family and friends, the, the giving up of time with extended family in order to go to a strange place. They give up the sense of home. They give up that feeling of, I belong here, I rest here. I was talking with somebody else that had been, because of his work, out of the area for extended periods of time, but they maintained their home and they come back to it, and when they land there again, it just feels like we're home. They don't spend nearly as much time there as they do other places anymore, but that's home. They're at rest. And... To, to leave and to move to another land in another culture where you are not at home. To give those things up for the sake of others there who need the gospel. There's a model there to follow. To, to make friends with people that you're not so much like and to give up or leave behind the friends that you had. Less comforts. A lower standard of living, just there's less comforts in the, in the, in the country, let's say a lower salary, to go to events, to be constantly learning things, always a little bit behind the, the social norms. You don't quite fit in. 
There's something of that with Christians in this current world. If we're going to follow Christ, we're going to have to leave some relationships behind. They won't want to go with us there. They will try to pull us back and dissuade us from making such sacrifices and commitments and throwing so much of our time in that direction. We're going to have to give up the approval of others. It might cost us advancement. If you're a student in school, you, you stand for truth in the midst of a paper that you're writing. And if you don't go along with the, with, the, with the worldview that's being pushed upon you, if you counter that in that paper, you can expect it might cost you in your grade. If you take a stand for what is true and right and upright, it might cost you in terms of, a, of an advancement or promotion in your job. You might choose because all that I have is actually a stewardship from God and this, these, these finances that I have, it's not just for me to use on myself how I please, but what would God have me to do with what he's put into my care? It might change the house you buy or the car you drive. There will be choices that you will make. Do I really have time in my week from other events that I would want to do or rest that I would want to enjoy? Do I have time to commit to others in a small group? Depending on what I commit to for my family, for the good of the kids, because they need these extracurricular activities and opportunities, but some of those functions are going to be on Sunday, so we're going to have to be there instead of together in worship in church. But there's probably another time we could go, or we could watch it online later. There will be sacrifices that we will make. There will be things that we could choose, and yet there's something else better. I don't know what the choice before you is, but I can tell you along the way it will be difficult. There's a choice that the Lord would put before you when he says, follow me, and is going to be difficult. And you're back to counting the tower, the cost of the tower, the cost of, of going to war. Can I really stand? Can I do this? And the answer probably is no. No, you can't. Now, isn't that an encouraging message this morning? I'm, I can't leave it there. But Paul hasn't either. And this is the audience that Luke is writing to. When Paul spoke of this, he started his letter to the Philippians very confident of a certain thing. He said, I am confident, I pray for you, in fact, because I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is what? He will be faithful to complete it. I can't build the tower, but God will. I don't have the ability to resist this temptation. I don't have the ability to make that sacrifice. I don't have the ability to stick to it and follow through. But he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That God himself is at work in you, both to will, Philippians 2 says, both to will and to do his good pleasure. What he calls us to do is to choose, to renounce, to say, this sure looks shiny and bright, but I will follow you. This is kind of what I want. I feel like I need, but I will follow you. I don't know what it is. I don't know what thing. But I do know that you can rightly count everything else as loss 
for the sake of following Christ. You can count everything else as dung, as pig poo, as bad as it smells in comparison to following Christ. And there as you follow him, it's not a matter of keeping st- of, of, of doing the right things and he's keeping score and he's going to give you a better reward depending on the tally marks that you have racked up. No, this is where you know him. And that is what eternal life is all about. Jesus puts it this way. He tells in, his, in that prayer to his father in John 17, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We're going to spend eternity knowing our God who has given us life to be in relationship with him. And we think there's other things right now that are more important. Yeah, we don't control any of this. And none of it can satisfy. Only he satisfies. And so I want to, I want to enclose just inviting us to pray together. I don't know what it is that you would need to choose. I don't know what it is what you need to renounce. I don't know what it is maybe concerning faith in Christ that is right now still, ah, but this is in the way. I'm going to trust myself. I'm not sure if I can trust God. Let's pray. Father, I do want to, want to begin, Lord, for, for one who perhaps, even this morning, is not sure that they can trust your mercy. They feel like they need to try a little bit to earn your favor, and that is not the point. Lord, we cannot keep, keep rules and be good enough. We are saved by your mercy and by your grace, humbly coming and throwing ourselves before you, believing your promise that if we confess our our guilt, our sin, our need, you are faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us. Father, for those of us that believe in Jesus as our Savior, who trust you for all of our eternity, and yet, Father, we confess we do have some trouble trusting you for today. We do have some trouble when other things distract us. Lord, we are worried about the approval of others, the acceptance of others. When we have been accepted by the Lord of glory, the one who made us for himself, oh Lord, would you fix our eyes all the more on Jesus, the beginner and perfecter of our faith. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now sat down at your right hand in glory. And Lord, that is your intention for us. His joy was in fact bringing many with him to glory. And Father, that includes all those here who believe in Jesus as Savior. So Father, would you help us to choose? Lord, if your word says that you will complete that good work that you've begun. Father, would you then, by your grace, in your strengthening, would you help us to take a next step, each one, in whatever that decision is? Lord, that we would trust you to follow you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.